Chapter 8 of The Sport of the Gods. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Rick Cornwall. The Sport of the Gods by Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Chapter 8 An Evening Out. Fanny Hamilton, tired as she was, sat long into the night with her little family discussing New York, its advantages and disadvantages, its beauty and its ugliness, its morality and immorality. She had somehow receded from her first position that it was better being here in the great strange city than being at home where the very streets shamed them. She had not liked the way that their fellow lodger looked at Kitty. It was bold, to say the least. She was not pleased, either, with their new acquaintance's familiarity. And yet he had said no more than some stranger, if there could be such a stranger, would have said down home. There was a difference, however, which she recognized. Thomas was not the provincial who puts everyone on a par with himself, nor was he the metropolitan who complacently patronizes the whole world. He was trained out of the one and not up to the other. The intermediate only succeeded in being offensive. Mrs. Jones' assurance as to her guest's fine qualities did not do all that might have been expected to reassure Mrs. Hamilton in the face of the difficulties of the gentleman's manners. She could not, however, lay her finger on any particular point that would give her the reason for rejecting his friendly advances. She got ready the next evening to go to the theater with the rest. Mr. Thomas at once possessed himself of Kitty and walked on ahead, leaving Joe to accompany his mother and Mrs. Jones an arrangement, by the way, not altogether to that young gentleman's taste. A good many men bowed to Thomas in the street, and they turned to look enviously after him. At the door of the theater they had to run the gauntlet of a dozen pairs of eyes. Here, too, the party's guide seemed to be well known, for someone said, before they passed out of hearing, I wonder who that little light girl is that Thomas is with tonight. He's a hot one for you. Mrs. Hamilton had been in a theater but once before in her life and Joe and Kit but a few times oftener. On those occasions they had sat far up in the peanut gallery in a place reserved for people of color. This was not a pleasant, cleanly, nor beautiful locality, and by contrast with it even the garishness of the cheap New York theater seemed fine and glorious. They had good seats in the first balcony, and here their guide had shown his managerial ability again, for he had found it impossible, or said so, to get all the seats together so that he and the girl were in the row in front, and to one side of where the rest sat. Kitty did not like the arrangement, and innocently suggested that her brother take her seat, while she went back to her mother. But her escort overruled her objections easily, and laughed at her so frankly that from shame she could not urge them again. And they were soon forgotten in her wonder at the mystery and glamour that envelopes the home of the drama. There was something weird to her in the alternate spaces of light and shade, Without any feel of its ugliness, she looked at the curtain as at a door that should presently open between her and a house of wonders. She looked at it with the fascination that one always experiences for what either brings near or withholds the unknown. As for Joe, he was not bothered by the mystery or the glamour of things, but he had suddenly raised himself in his own estimation. He had gazed steadily at a girl across the aisle until she smiled in response. Of course, he went hot and cold by turns and the sweat broke out on his brow. But instantly he began to swell. 
He had made a decided advance in knowledge, and he swelled with the consciousness that already he was coming to be a man of the world. He looked with a new feeling at the swaggering, sporty young Negroes. His attitude towards them was not one of humble self-depreciation any more. Since last night he had grown, and felt that he might, that he would be like them, and it put a sort of chuckling glee into his heart. One might find it in him to feel sorry for this small-souled warped being, for he was so evidently the jest of faith, if it were not that he was so blissfully, so conceitedly unconscious of his own nastiness. Down home he had shaved the wild young bucks of the town, and while doing it drunk and eagerly their unguarded narrations of their gay exploits. So he had started out with false ideals as to what was fine and manly. He was afflicted by a sort of moral and mental astigmatism that made him see everything wrong. As he sat there tonight, he gave to all he saw a wrong value, and upon it based his ignorant desires. When the men of the orchestra filed in and began tuning their instruments. It was the signal for an influx of loiterers from the door. There was a large number of colored people in the audience, and because members of their own race were given the performance, they seemed to take a proprietary interest in it all. They discussed its merits and demerits as they walked down the aisle in much the same tone that the owners would have used had they been wondering whether the entertainment was going to please the people or not. Finally, the music struck up one of the numerous Negro marches. It was accompanied by the rhythmic padding of feet from all parts of the house. Then the curtain went up on a scene of beauty. It purported to be a grove to which a party of picnickers, the ladies and gentlemen of the chorus, had come for a holiday, and they were telling the audience all about it in crescendos. With the exception of one who looked like a faded kid glove, the men discarded the grease paint, but the women under their makeups ranged from pure white, pale yellow, and sickly greens to brick reds and slate grays. They were dressed in costumes that were not primarily intended for picnic going, but they could sing, and they did sing, with their voices, their bodies, their souls. They threw themselves into it because they enjoyed and felt what they were doing, and they gave almost a semblance of dignity to the tawdry music and the inane words. Kitty was enchanted. The airily dressed women seemed to her like creatures from fairyland, it is strange how the glare of the footlights succeeds in deceiving so many people who are able to see through other delusions. The cheap dresses on the street had not fooled Kitty for an instant. But take the same cheesecloth, put a little water starch into it, and put it on the stage, and she could see only chiffon. She turned around and nodded delightedly at her brother, but he did not see her. He was lost, transfixed. His soul was floating on a sea of sense. He had eyes and ears and thoughts only for the stage. His nerves tingled and his hands twitched, only to know one of these radiant creatures, to have her speak to him, smile at him. If ever a man was intoxicated, Joe was. Mrs. Hamilton was divided between shame at the clothes of some of the women and delight with the music. Her companion was busy pointing out who this and that actress was, and giving jelly-like appreciation to the doings on the stage. Mr. Thomas was the only cool one in the party. He was quietly taking stock of his young companion, of her innocence and charm. She was a pretty girl, little and dainty, but well-developed for her age. Her hair was very black and wavy, and some strain of the South's chivalric blood, which is so curiously mingled with the African in the veins of most colored people, had tinged her skin to an olive hue. Are you enjoying yourself? he leaned over and whispered to her. His voice was very confidential, and his lips near her ear, but she did not notice. 
Oh, yes, she answered. This is grand. How I'd like to be an actress and be up there. Maybe you will some day. Oh, no, I'm not smart enough. We'll see, he said wisely. I know a thing or two. Between the first and second acts, a number of Thomas's friends strolled up to where he sat and began talking. And again, Kitty's embarrassment took possession of her as they were introduced one by one. They treated her with a half-courteous familiarity that made her blush. Her mother was not pleased with the many acquaintances that her daughter was making, and would have interfered had not Mrs. Jones assured her that the men clustered about their host's seat were some of the best people in town. Joe looked at them hungrily, but the man in front with his sister did not think it necessary to include the brother or the rest of the party in his miscellaneous introductions. One brief bit of conversation which the mother overheard especially troubled her. "'Not going out for a minute or two, asked one of the men, as he was turning away from Thomas. "'No, I don't think I'll go out tonight. You can have my share.' The fellow gave a hoarse laugh, then replied, "'Well, you're doing a great piece of work, Miss Hamilton, whenever you can keep old Bill from going out and lushing between acts. Say you got a good thing. Push it along.' The girl's mother half rose, but she resumed her seat, for the man was going away. Her mind was not quiet again, however, until the people were all in their seats, and the curtain had gone up on the second act. At first she was surprised at the enthusiasm over just such dancing as she could see any day from the loafers on the street corners down home. And then, like a good, sensible, humble woman, she came around to the idea that it was she who had always been wrong in putting too low a value on really worthy things. So she laughed and applauded with the rest all the while trying to quiet something that was tugging at her away down in her heart. When the performance was over, she forced her way to Kitty's side, where she remained in spite of all Thomas's palpable efforts to get her away. Finally, he proposed that they all go to supper at one of the colored cafes. You'll see a lot of the show people, he said. No, I reckon we'd better go home, said Mrs. Hamilton decidedly. The chillin ain't used to stayin' up all hours and nights, and I ain't anxious for em to get used to it. She was conscious of a growing dislike for this man who treated her daughter with such a proprietary air. Joe winced again at de chillin. Thomas bit his lip and mentally said things that are unfit for publication. Aloud, he said, maybe Miss Kitty'd like to go and have a little lunch. Oh, no thank you, said the girl. I've had a nice time, and I don't care for a thing to eat. Joe told herself that Kitty was the biggest fool that it had ever been his lot to meet, and the disappointed suitor satisfied himself with the reflection that the girl was green yet, but would get bravely over that. He tempted to hold her hand as they parted at the parlor door, but she drew her fingers out of his clasp and said, Good night, thank you, as if he had been one of her mother's old friends. Joe lingered a little longer. Say, that was out of sight, he said. Think so? asked the other carelessly. I'd like to get out with you some time to see the town, the boy went on eagerly. All right, we'll go some time. So long. So long. Some time. Was it true? Would he really take him out and let him meet stage people? Joe went to bed with his head in a whirl. He slept little that night for thinking of his heart's desire. End of chapter 8 Recorded by Rick Cornwall